Take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 15. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 21. You can find those starting on the very last verse at the bottom of page 10 and then on to page 11 in the Pew Bible. Last week, we focused on a couple of important R's, relationship and righteousness. We talk a lot about relationship in our circles these days, having a personal relationship with Jesus, and that's good. But we don't talk a lot about righteousness, though the two go together. You cannot have one without the other. So I have been intentionally trying to overwhelm you with talk of righteousness to draw your attention to the fact uh, that the Bible talks a lot about righteousness. We saw it last week in verse 6. Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Why? Well, because righteousness is required for relationship with God. To be right with God, you have to be righteous. Bad news, you are not righteous. Abram, a man that was probably far better than all of us, was not righteous. Paul in Philippians 3, a man that was probably far better than all of us, uh, was not righteous. And that same Paul writes in Romans 3.10 that none is righteous. No, not one. That's trouble. God is perfectly righteous. To be in relationship with him, you must be perfectly righteous. You are not perfectly righteous. And so something has to be done about that. And that something we're seeing is covenant. Because today we come to another one of those words that just isn't talked about a lot in the context that many of us grew up in. I was reading a pastor a hundred years ago that was decrying the loss of a focus on the covenants in churches. That was a hundred years ago. I would hate to see what this man said today. So again, I'm trying to overwhelm you with talk of covenant to draw your attention to the often overlooked fact that the Bible talks a lot about covenant. The word is used over 280 times in the Old Testament, over 30 times in the New Testament. But even more important than just the numbers of uses of the word itself, covenants serve as as the backbone of the Bible. The Bible is structured around covenants. You're holding a Bible, and we call the two halves of our Bibles Old Testament and New Testament. It would be honestly, it would be better if we called them Old Covenant and New Covenant, because testament is just another possible translation of the Greek word that is translated covenant. The books of the New Testament are the scriptures of the New Covenant. The books of the Old Testament are the scriptures of the Old Covenant. And so you properly cannot understand your Bible, unless you probably cannot understand who God is and what he's done without having some sort of understanding of the covenants. As Charles Spurgeon says, and if Spurgeon said it, it's true. The doctrine of the covenant lies at the root of all true theology. So we've got to get covenant correct. And so today we're going to move from righteousness in verse 6 to covenant in verse 18 and try to understand how these two are related. So why covenant? What is a covenant? Why does that matter for us today? Well, those are some of the questions we want to try and answer over the next couple of minutes as we look at the next thing God does in the life of Abram. And that next thing is covenant. God has been making promises, great promises. Abram has been fighting to believe and trust those promises. And we'll see that again today. How do you know that you can trust God? And on what are you basing your trust? I want to argue this morning that the answer must be covenant. You can trust God because as we've been saying, he's both the promise making and the promise keeping God. And he is the promise keeping God by being both the covenant making and the covenant keeping God. The covenant here guarantees that you can trust God. That you can rely upon him. That you can depend upon him to do what he says. I can't prove this, but it seems like more and more people today struggle with assurance. Maybe it's in part because we have neglected the covenants. Covenant is how you spell assurance. Abram is going to say, how am I to know? Maybe you have been saying, how am I to know? And God's answer to both is covenant. So our goal this morning is to find hope and encouragement and assurance in the God of the covenant and the grace 
of the covenant. We're going to do that with four points. We're going to walk through the passage and to try to understand what these covenants are. I'll define it in a moment. We're going to see that it's God who initiates the covenant. Then we're going to see that it's God who cuts the covenant. And I'll explain that terminology. Then we're going to see it's God himself who guarantees the covenant. And then it's going to be Christ who ultimately and finally keeps the covenant for us. So that's the progression that we're going to make through Genesis chapter 15. Let's read the passage first. I hope you have it open there in front of you. We're going to read Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 7 down through verse 21. This is what God wants to say to you today. And he, God, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace." You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. If you would bow with me and let's begin first with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, this is somewhat of a strange story. Father, this is such an important story. So I ask now that you would give us understanding, that you would help us. Father, we have sung that we need you every hour. Father, that includes this hour. That includes so that we may understand your word and not just understand your word, but love your word and love you because of what you reveal to us about your word. Father, I pray that your spirit would work through your word. I pray that you would help us to understand the importance of the covenants. And more importantly, I pray that you would help us to love the God of the covenants. Father, help me now in the preaching of your word. Help all of us in the hearing of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point number one. God initiates the covenant. Look at how God begins all of this in verse 7. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. And so God begins by identifying himself. We're going to define covenant in a moment, but a covenant involves parties. It involves persons. Well, here is the first party, the first person, and it is God himself. And by identifying himself at the outset, he's putting this whole thing into the context of an already initiated relationship. He, he reveals to remind. He reveals and reminds to assure Abram from the outset. And notice that he's done the same thing back in verse 1. The word of the Lord comes to Abram and says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Right, so God is again reminding Abram of who he is. And God most famously does this in another, of course, covenant passage. In Exodus 20, verse 2, before the making of the next covenant, the Mosaic covenant, God begins again by saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of Slavery. So notice the parallels between 15.7 and 22. In both cases, God says, I am. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That's who he is. That's his identity. 
And then he says, I brought you out of Ur, or I brought you out of Egypt. That's what he has done. That is his activity. So covenant begins with God. It begins with the God who initiates the covenant. He starts off by saying, don't forget who I am. I am God. I am good. Don't forget what I have already done. I have already demonstrated both my godness and my goodness in calling you out and delivering you. So remember, don't forget, I loved you. I saved you. I protected you. I initiated this whole arrangement, this covenant. Well, what is that? We need to back up and briefly define what a covenant is. Is. Well, this is not language that we use much these days anymore. Sadly, we're going to try to fix that. So what is a covenant and what are covenants for? Okay, we don't have to guess. God tells us a lot. And he tells us with the most frequent covenant expression in the entire Old Testament. Listen to what God says over and over and over again to help us understand what this whole thing is about. Uh, Exodus 6, verse 7, he says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Leviticus 26, 12, he says, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Jeremiah 30, 22, you shall be my people and I will be your God. Ezekiel 36, 28, you shall be my people and I will be your God. And Hebrews 8, 10 summarizes it all for us. For this is the covenant I will make, declares the Lord. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's covenant. Remember how verse one, we looked at this last week. Verse one should probably be translated as God saying, fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your very great reward. He's saying, I am your reward, Abram. Relationship was the reward. Covenant is all about God with his people. It is about God present with his people. That is why some have referred to the key idea at the heart of the covenant as the Emmanuel principle of the covenant, right? We know that Jesus is Emmanuel. We know at Christmas, that's because that means God with us. Covenant is God with us. It is all about relationship. Uh, This is what we talked about last week in some detail under the heading of relationship. The reward is relationship and relationship requires righteousness. And there we saw that this is a summary of the whole Bible. This is what God has been doing from the beginning. This is what he is up to. This is what he is about. He is the king. He creates in Genesis 1. A king creates a place and then fills it with a people. That's a kingdom. King, place, people. Or, as we've been seeing in the promises, king, land, seed. All of this is about God having a people for himself and those people living in perfect communion or relationship with God. Right? That's what the land represents. And as I said, this is a term that is familiar to us. I mentioned at the beginning that we talk a lot these days about having a personal relationship with God. We rightly use very intimate personal language when we talk about God. And that's fine. That's good. But what I'm trying to convey here is that all of that is impossible without covenant. You cannot know God without covenant. You cannot be in relationship with God without covenant. You cannot be a Christian without covenant. You cannot be saved without covenant. Covenant is relationship. Yes, and we know we are all of us desperate for relationship. Even the secular world, the more that you read, is increasingly realizing that meaning and joy and fulfillment is not found in possessions, uh, but in people, not in ownership, but in relationship. You were created for it. You're wired for it. Yes, horizontally with others, but more importantly, vertically with God himself. Right? One of the greatest lines written in history, Augustine's famous uh, statement over 1,600 years ago. You have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You cannot and will not find rest and peace and fulfillment anywhere else. If you are lacking rest and peace and fulfillment, it's probably because you are looking anywhere else. It cannot and it does not work because you were created for communion with God himself. But as we know the story we saw last week in Genesis 3, we wrecked it, we ruined it, 
We rebelled against and rejected the good God of relationship. We sinned. And we all hopefully know by now that it is the nature of sin to separate. Right? Sin separates. It, it has to. Sin says no to God and yes to self. Sin rejects God. And when you reject the one who is life himself, well, then you are choosing and receiving death itself. The wages of sin is death. So you were created for a relationship with God. You ruined it and ran from relationship with God. But there is hope. There is hope of the relationship restored. And that's what covenant is all about. I saw a covenant then. It's somewhat like a contract. Uh, it's, it's a divine contract. It's an arrangement that God enters into and makes with man. It is a relationship of oaths and bonds. It is a relationship that is both legal and personal. It is an oath sworn, legally binding, yet intimately personal relationship. Like there's dozens and dozens of definitions I, I have, and I don't want to get into all the potentially confusing definitions out there. I simply want you to understand that covenant is about communion with God. It sets and determines the conditions that would regulate our relationship, the relationship between God and his people. Or again, because I'm annoying and obnoxious and I like to be too cute and creative with alliteration. Here's what I came up with. It's covenants, condition, creator, creature, communion. That's just, that's probably not helpful. But it's five C's and I was impressed with myself. Covenants, condition, creator, creature, communion. Right? So it's the covenant that conditions, that sets the terms for the communion, the relationship between the creator and the creature. And again, this actually isn't that foreign of an idea to us. We're going to talk about it a bit more in our third point. But consider marriage. Marriage is a covenant. Or, or consider church membership, actually. Mike and I have been thinking and talking a lot about church membership. We think it is both very biblical and very important. We're not sure that everyone exactly gets that and understands the significance of church membership. So Mike and I have been meeting in February. We've been talking. We decided that we're actually, we're going to take a couple of weeks pause from Genesis starting next week. We're going to take the month of March and we're going to take four weeks to do something we don't usually do, but we think it would be a good thing to do, and to do a brief topical series to focus for a couple of weeks on membership. We want to take a little bit of time to look together at what our church covenant is and what it says, and then together try and better understand what the church is, why membership is so important, and what membership actually entails. So I'm going to start off next week by making a biblical case for church membership, and I'm going to argue that church membership is a covenant. So we're going to finish and pause for four weeks from Genesis talking about covenant being about relationship and we're going to use that to transition to membership in a church as a covenant that divines and regulates the relationship of of the church so come back for that next week i'm going to do membership mike's going to do the next one we're going to talk about discipline people hate that word so we need to talk about it what that is then we're going to talk about our roles and responsibilities so we're going to take a few weeks to do that coming up uh, but right now, back to the text, we're trying to better understand the centrality of covenants in God's relationship with his people. Covenant is how God does relationship. Right? You cannot be in relationship without covenant. And so the first thing we see here with Abram, as with all covenants, is that God is the one who initiates covenants. Listen, that's remarkable. Don't forget Genesis 3. Don't forget sin. Don't forget the creature, uh, creator-creature distinction. Maybe you don't yet fully appreciate covenant because you don't yet fully appreciate just how big God is and how small you are, how holy God is and how sinful you are. But this infinitely big and perfectly holy God is also the God who initiates and enters into relationship with pathetically small and disturbingly sinful people like us. This should take our breath away. People joke that in every relationship, there is a reacher and a settler. Have you ever heard that? In every relationship, there's a reacher and a settler. Right? In our relationship, I am very much the reacher, right? Uh, do you know what that means? Right? It, Melissa, Melissa is my superior in every way. 
I'm playing out of my league, right? I'm playing in a league that is above my own. I am the reacher in the relationship. We have an ongoing marital dispute. Um, she argues that today is our uh, 12th year. She calls it metaversary. Today is the day we met 12 years ago. It was actually yesterday. Um, she's wrong. We actually met yesterday, and that's the day we met at church. Today is the day we met at a dance place. Um, so let's. I'm going to go with the. I'm going to go with the church one is when we met. Um, but, again, you see what I'm saying? I'm a reacher, meaning she's my superior in every way. She's more attractive than me, more popular than me, friendlier than me. She had more money than me, everything. She was great, me, eh, not so much. But do you know what the realization of that does for me? It makes me very thankful for my wife. It makes me very thankful and appreciative that she would consent to enter into a relationship with me. Even though I tried to do everything that I could to mess it up a couple of times, right? Her superiority over me in every way gives me a great love for the fact that I get to be in relationship with her. Jerry knows what I'm talking about, right? It's the same thing. Sorry, Jerry. Make it a joke. We love you, Ruth and Jerry. The point is that in an infinitely greater way, that's what the fact that God has initiated covenant with you, should do for and in you. He pursues his wayward people. We run from him. He runs after us. We reject him. He redeems us. We try to mess things up. He still comes after us. We make ourselves his enemies. He makes us his sons and daughters. God initiates the covenant with us. Does that delight you? Are you amazed at all that you get to be in covenant relationship with the God that creates everything and holds everything together? He initiates the covenant. But that's only the beginning. Point number two, God next cuts the covenant. And I'm using that word intentionally. But look first at verse eight. Look at verse eight. One verse down. Look at Abram's response to God's reaffirming the promise to give him the land. Remember, the land, we're not focusing too much on the fact of the land. The land is about the presence. It's about being in relationship with God. Remember, like the garden. The garden is important because that's where God is. Kicked out of the garden, kicked out of the presence of God. That's what the land represents. God with his people. All right, but Abram asks, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So Abram questions. And don't forget, this is just two verses after verse 6 where Abram believes. And so I don't think this is so much a question of doubt. I think it's a question of faith. We know he believes. We know he trusts. We also know that that can be a struggle sometime. God has made great and grand promises to Abram. And it's already been a while. How is Abram to know that God will do what he said? God has made great and grand promises to you. Maybe it feels like it's already been a while. How are you to know that God will do what he said? Maybe you have faith. Do you have assurance? Those are two different things. Maybe you know God. Do you know that you know God? Those are two different things. How can you know? There's a whole lot that we could talk about. We don't have time to do an extensive study of assurance. But all we're seeing right now is that central to the answer of assurance is covenant. God's answer to Abram's question is covenant. But it sure looks a little strange at first. Look at verse 9. God says, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Uh, what? How will I know God? Hey, go grab those five animals. Huh? But it seems that Abram understands. Look at verse 10. And he, Abram, brought all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Uh, Some people are really bothered by the fact that he cuts the first three animals, uh, but not the two birds. Why doesn't he cut the birds? They're little. I don't know. Get over it. It doesn't matter. Um, But this whole thing is a bit strange. Isn't it? Think about it. How will I know? Get some animals. Okay, I cut up the animals. How is this an answer 
to that. How does what is now happening here have anything to do with Abram's question and his desire to know? Well, because while what is happening here may seem strange to us, it wouldn't have seemed strange to Abram. He is not confused. He, He knows just what to do because this would have been familiar practice. This is a standard covenant ceremony. And we know that this is a covenant ceremony because the result of all this down in verse 18 is that the Lord made a covenant with Abram. I wish they had translated that differently, though, because that word there made the word in the Hebrew, the verb is literally to cut. It literally says God cut a covenant with Abraham. That's why we call it cutting a covenant. And that's why, verse 10, Abram cuts the animals in two. This is how you would enter into a covenant arrangement back then. And it was a common practice. We have it attested from many other places around that time. This is how you would, in effect, sign the contract. Well, how in the world does a bunch of cut up animals do that? Well, the best explanation of what's happening here and what it means comes from, from another spot later in Scripture. Let's turn there briefly. Well, we're going to go to Jeremiah 34. You can find that on page 663. Go to Jeremiah 34, 663. This is important. We'll turn there. Jeremiah 34, 663. Uh, things are not good. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah is a tough read. Jerusalem is going to fall in only five chapters after this one. Judgment is coming. Everything is falling apart. Look at verse one. We see in verse one that Zedekiah is the king, but Zedekiah is surrounded. Nebuchadnezzar has come and with him the great armies of great Babylon. There is no hope. We know that God's hand is behind this. And so jump ahead to verse eight. There, down in verse 8, Zedekiah makes a covenant, and he calls it a covenant of liberty. The city is about to fall. They know it's about to fall. And so, hey, you know, what's the point of having slaves if we're all going to die anyways? So all the slaves are set free. And then you'll see there at the end of verse 10, we see that everyone obeyed, and they set their slaves free. But, verse 11, uh uh-oh. They changed their mind. They took back their slaves. Probably because somewhere in this period, Nebuchadnezzar temporarily has to pull back and halt his assault on Jerusalem to briefly deal with Egypt that is coming up out of the south. So he has to pull back for a little bit and deal with Egypt before he can come back to and focus on Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar pulls back. No more immediate threat of destruction. Oh, hey, maybe we're going to need those slaves after all. And so they, rep- they, they change their mind and they break their covenant. And God is not happy because they broke the covenant. Look at verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty. Everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty. Whew, what kind? Liberty to the sword, to pestilence and to famine declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. That is a horrifying verse. What's going to happen? Look at verse 18 through 20. This is why we're here. Verse 18. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut into and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Listen, that's what happens to covenant breakers. And that's what the animals mean. Did did you see it? They had made a covenant. And in verse 18, that meant they had cut an animal in two and they had passed between the parts of the animal. And when they break that covenant, the penalty is Death. Why? 
because of the animals. They will die like the animals themselves. God says they will be food for the birds of the air and beasts of the earth. That's why it's called cutting a covenant. And that's what the animals signify. When you entered into a covenant, you would pass between the killed and the cut animals. And in so doing, and in signing your name on the dotted line, you are in effect symbolically saying, may what has been done to these animals be done to me if I do not keep this covenant. There's an ancient Assyrian, Assyria's uh, country north uh, of Israel. There's an ancient Assyrian text that archaeologists have found from a covenant ceremony. And it says this. It says, this head is not the head of a lamb. It is the head of Matilu. If Matilu sins against this covenant, so may, just as the head of this lamb is torn off, so may the head of Matilu be torn off and the head of his sons. You see that? The animal is killed and destroyed. And by passing through it, you are saying, may I be killed and destroyed and treated as this animal if I break this covenant. Right? This sacrifice of these animals and the passing through is an enactment of the oath. It was a swearing of the most solemn of oaths on the pain of death. Again, this isn't all that strange. To us, When I was growing up, if your friends wouldn't believe you about something and you really, really wanted to convince your friends that you meant it, you would say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Uh, no one knows exactly where that comes from, by the way. Uh, the crossing of the heart probably relates to making the sign of the cross in Catholicism, but it's, it's a childish form of an oath of self-malediction. I am so serious about this that if I'm lying, may I die, may a needle be stuck in my eye. That's the exact same thing that's happening here. And Abram would have understood what was happening here. Abram knows that this is a covenant ceremony. And so in cutting and laying out the animals, he is preparing to enter into covenant with God most high. God cuts the covenant. But before we move on, we need to briefly deal with verses 11 through 16 before we camp and focus on verse 17. Look at 11 through 16. What's going on in verse 11? Uh, what's the deal with the birds? Good question. It's probably symbolic. Uh, birds of prey in Scripture are sometimes symbolic of the unclean nations that would be surrounding Israel, that would then serve as a constant threat to Israel, and thus a constant threat to the fulfillment of the promise. So this symbolically probably means that there will be threats, that there will be danger. And Abram, in driving the birds off, is symbolically defending the promises from Abram, representing God who will faithfully defend uh, the promises from danger, I mean, not from, from Abram. And I think that makes sense in light of what happens in 12 through 16. Look there. God specifically warns him about that coming danger. And he gets specific. Look at verse 12. Abram is out. Right? He didn't just doze off. Okay, God, God put him out. This is the same language in Genesis 2, just like Adam. He's, he's knocked out. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Why? Well, it's either just because God himself is coming and he is great and he is dreadful and he is glorious, but most likely it's because of what comes next. It's because of God's word. God's word is always good, but it is not always easy. The end is always good, but the means to the end is not always easy. And so dreadful and great darkness is symbolic of what is in store for God's people. Look at 13. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Man, everyone today is looking for a word from the Lord. Can you imagine getting that one from the Lord? Hey, 400 years of affliction. That is a long time, and it is going to be a hard time. God's people are never promised comfort and ease in this life. In fact, they are more generally promised the exact opposite. Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Sometimes you have to wait a long time. Sometimes you have to go through a very hard time. How is this helpful? How is this helping us with our assurance? Well, 
Most simply because it, it's true. It's, it's real life. And knowing this ahead of time, in knowing God's people spend a lot of time waiting, and that God's people tend to spend a lot of time suffering, you won't have to be surprised and confused when you experience those things. And this is one of the things that I most love about God and his word. He never sugarcoats things. He never hides anything. Life for God's people in a world that hates God will sometimes be hard. You will suffer. You will be disappointed. You will wait. And God tells you all of that up front. That's a God that you can trust. When we take the girls to get their shots, we don't tell them it doesn't hurt. Because then when they get the shot and it very much does hurt, they will know that we are liars and that we are not to be trusted. So now we tell them, hey, yes, it, it does hurt, but only for a moment. And that brief moment of pain is worth it because it can spare you from far greater and far longer and far more dangerous pain. This light and momentary suffering is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. And God tells us up front, there will be suffering for Abram's offspring. Brothers and sisters, there will be suffering for you. That does not mean that you're outside of God's will. That does not mean that you've necessarily done something wrong. That does not mean that God is out to get you. Know that this is part of the Christian life. And trust the God that loves his people enough to be honest with him up front and who is powerful enough to bring all kinds of eternal and ultimate good out of the difficult things that we experience here. And we see just a little glimpse of that in verse 14. Here's a temporal example of that. He says, God will bring judgment on the nation that afflicts Israel, and then he'll bring them out of there with great possessions. So God, 400 years in advance, has just summarized the entire end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And he, he foreknows. But not only does he foreknow, he foreordains. This is his plan. This, it will bring about his glory, and it will bring about ultimately the good of his people. And all of this, though, we see, will take place after Abram. So verse 15 prophesies his, prophesies his peaceful death, and then verse 16 again prophesies his children bring, bring, being brought back into the land once the uh, iniquity of the Amorites is full. Again, God's not arbitrarily wiping people out. He is executing his good and righteous and holy justice on a wicked people. And notice that he's waiting 400 years to execute that just justice. So he will bring them back in. And so from all of that, we are further assured of both God's love and his power. We are further convinced of the importance of covenants. God is binding himself to his people. And the good news, though there will be difficulty, is that his word is sure Always, There's nothing left up in the air. There's no uncertainty. And this is the God that you need. Not a God, as he has often preached, who was a little God, um, a God who is waiting for you, a God who is sitting back and hoping you do the right thing, a God who cannot control and be sovereign and do. No, you need this big God, this absolutely sovereign God, this God that not only knows but determines the future and who reveals it and who speaks to his people, who tells them who he is, what he has done, and what he is going to do. That's where you'll find assurance. It is knowing the sovereign God who initiates and cuts covenants with his people. And point number three, it is knowing the sovereign God who guarantees the covenant. Look at verse 17. Don't forget, Abram is knocked out. Don't forget the covenant ceremony. The parties pass through the cut animals. Don't forget what that symbolizes. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch, torch passed between these pieces. Now, this Honestly, this could be one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Why? It's because of the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch and what they are doing. What are they? Or better yet, what do they represent? Uh, Exodus 13, 21. Remember the Exodus. Remember God. And it says, And the Lord went before them, how? By day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart 
from before his people. God went before his people. God never departed from his people. God was present with his people, and he was present in the form of smoke and fire. And we have the same thing in verse 17. These are symbolic manifestations of God's presence. Smoke and fire. God has come. God is here. And what does God do? God passes through the cut animals. And Abram doesn't. Only God. Remember what the passing through of the cut animals signifies. May I be torn in pieces like these animals if I break this covenant. Now listen, it, it's impossible for God to break a covenant. He, he cannot fail. But in God and God alone passing through the animals, not Abram, it seems as if God is also doing this for Abram and in Abram's place. In effect, also then saying, if you, Abram, fail to keep this covenant, may I be torn in pieces like this animal. God himself is taking on the curse of the covenant. Now, what are we seeing here? We're seeing a God who is faithful to the death. We are seeing here a God that guarantees that he will keep his covenant with his people no matter what. His sinful, unfaithful people. Just look ahead to chapter 16. Look at the heading. Don't forget what happens in chapter 16. Sin and unfaithfulness. Don't forget what happens over the course of the whole Old Testament. Sin and unfaithfulness. Don't forget what has happened over the course of your entire life. Sin and unfaithfulness, which is why you so desperately need covenant. And the grace of covenant and the God who guarantees his covenant passing through the animals is the swearing of an oath. Again, we do this when we get married, right? We, we, we call them vows. Honestly, they're, they're really oaths. Or in a sense, they're, they're kind of both. What's the difference between an oath and a vow? A vow is a solemn promise made to the Lord. An oath is a solemn promise made to others before the Lord. Right? The purpose of an oath is, is confirmation. God is confirming and testifying to my word that I am saying here. The purpose of a vow is a commitment made to the Lord. So when I said 10 years ago, I, Matthew, take Melissa to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish from this, this, from this day forward until death do us part according to God's holy ordinance. I am swearing an oath. In fact, the old vows used to include this line. We should bring this back. And thereto I plight thee my troth. Sounds pretty cool. Uh, plight is to pledge or to give. And troth is literally an oath. And therefore I give to you my oath. It's a pledge or a promise of faithfulness and loyalty witnessed and confirmed before God himself. I am swearing to my wife before God. I am swearing by God to be faithful to my word. But think about it. Who can God swear by? Only himself. And so we read earlier in Hebrews 6.13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Verse 17, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, Hey, that's you, by the way. That's me. When he desired to show more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now we're going to see later how that's explicitly referencing Genesis chapter 22, but it has to include this chapter as well, because that is what God is doing in passing through the animals. He is swearing by himself. He is guaranteeing his word to Abram and to you with an oath, and it is the greatest oath ever Taken. It is the oath that God himself would take on the curse if his people, you, failed 
to keep the covenant. And you did. And we did. We, we all of us did. And since point number three, God guarantees the covenant, we have little time for point number four, Christ keeps the covenant. God guarantees it. We fail to keep it. The good news of the gospel is that Christ keeps it for us. Why does Jesus have to come and die in our place? It's not just to give us a nice moral lesson. Right? It's not just to show us kind of a way to love other people. No, it's because of sin. And we know that. Sin has separated. There has to be a payment for that sin death. But why does he actually come and do it? It's because of this. It's because of Genesis 15, 17. It's because God has promised and sworn that he himself would take on the curse of breaking the covenant. And Jesus, who is God, does just that. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus is God keeping his oath in Genesis chapter 15. And this is what covenant is all about. This is what covenant ultimately points to. Again, I'm not I don't care about the land. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about Israel as a country again. It has nothing to do with what's happening here. This is what all the covenants are about. It's the glorious good news that God himself comes to save his people by dying for his people in the person of Jesus Christ. That's covenant. We tend to disagree about the covenants when we are meant to delight in them. They're often a cause for conflict and confusion when they're supposed to be the cause of comfort. We tend to argue over the covenants when we are supposed to be assured by the covenants because all of them are building towards and pointing to that one main thing. Covenants regulate the relationship. There can be no relationship without righteousness. There can be no righteousness without death. And so Christ has come to establish righteousness, to fulfill righteousness, to pay that debt, and to restore us with relationship with God himself. That's the covenant. All of them. It's about relationship that God has initiated, cut, guaranteed, and kept himself. This is why I titled this sermon, The Grace of Covenant. When we get to chapter 17, you're going to see that that's very intentional on my part. We don't have time for it now, but when we get there, we're going to see that our Presbyterians flip that, our Presbyterian brothers that we love. They call this covenant the covenant of grace. We Reformed Baptists disagree. We think the new covenant and the new covenant alone is the covenant of grace. But we'll get to that in chapter 17. That's not what we're talking about right now. We're not talking about the covenant of grace, but I want you to see how all of this, how everything God does for his people is grace, including covenant, including this covenant. We're focused on the grace of the covenant and that God does this for us and God enters into this for us and he guarantees it and he keeps it for us. And I just don't know what to do if this doesn't amaze you, if that doesn't get you excited, if it, if it doesn't feel you, fill you with gratitude and joy. God himself has done all of this for you so that you can live, so that you can be in relationship with him, and it is all grace. Remember, he, in his indescribable greatness and glory, does this for you and our, you and our unimaginable weakness and sin. And if you, if you can see that, and if you can see the gap, if you can understand the covenant, do you know what that gives you? It gives you assurance. How can I know? Covenant. Covenant is how you can know. This is how far God is willing to go. This is what God is willing to do so that his people can be restored to relationship with him. And so because of this covenant, because of the oath God swears and then keeps in Christ, we read it in Hebrews 6, 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the place, the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone on a as a forerunner on our behalf. Do you know what's behind the curtain? It's God himself. We're not allowed, we were not allowed to go there. Right? Sin separates us from him. 
But now we get to enter in because Christ has entered first. Hebrews 9, 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. May I be cut like these animals, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. Verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, which remember is relationship. I am your exceedingly great reward. And it happens through covenant. It starts with the covenant, this covenant, where God tells us what he is going to do in that new covenant when Christ comes and actually takes on the curse and sheds his own blood so that we, with our sin debt paid, could enter in and be restored to the presence of God himself and be with him forever. That's covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. Here's what it's going to take for this to happen. And God says, but I'm going to do it. And I guarantee it. That's, that's where you'll find assurance. That's how you know. This is a sure and steadfast anchor of your soul. If you would bow with me, let's, let's end uh, with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that your word is infinitely better than my words. And so I pray now that you would take your words, Father, I pray that you would drive them deep into our hearts and minds. I pray that you would comfort us with those words. Father, I pray that someone in here was asking the question, how will I know? And I pray that they would be encouraged and assured by the fact that you are the covenant-making and the covenant-guaranteeing and the covenant-keeping God. Father, we can find a great security and a great anchor in the fact that you are the God of grace who does everything on behalf of his people uh, to save them from their sins. You have left nothing up to chance, and even more importantly, you have left nothing up to us. And so, Father, we thank you for that. And I pray that we would learn to meditate on that. And I pray that you would help us to rejoice in that fact that you are the God of the covenant and that we would learn to identify ourselves as your covenant people, and that we would find great joy in the fact that you make those covenants, keep those covenants ultimately for us in Jesus Christ. So, Father, comfort, encourage, assure. I pray also that you would uh, challenge and convict um, anyone who does not know you, anyone who is now aware uh, of the fact that their sin separates them from you. Father, grant them repentance and faith. Grant them new birth and new life in Christ. Father, we ask now that your will would be done as your spirit works through your word. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.